I want nothing to do with the Pittsburgh Steelers. I was just looking over my Dynasty League teams, and I realized I own very few Steelers across the board. And I know why. Because this team is terrifying. On playerprofiler.com forward slash articles, our writers are rolling out team outlooks. And someone asked to cover the Steelers. And I said, sure, you better wear your Halloween costume when you do, because it's trick or treat. With the Pittsburgh Steelers. We don't know which Steelers team we're going to get week in, week out. We don't know. Steelers' performances in the last couple of years have been oscillating wildly back and forth. And this is what happens before a supernova. Inside a star, there's instability. Atoms come crashing down. And then... So we've been seeing unstable performances from the Pittsburgh Steelers for years, and it's been blamed on, oh, Ben Roethlisberger's home road splits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When Ben Roethlisberger goes on the road, he just panics. But he's so much more comfortable within the confines of Heinz Field. Yes, and there's a magical force that envelops Heinz Field and protects Ben Roethlisberger from bad performances when he plays there. <laughs> yeah. I'm not superstitious at all, believing in these home road splits. No, they're real, right? They're real. The supernatural powers of the home field advantage. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but when you go on the road, Mr. Rothless Beggar, you will be cursed. <laughs> oh, more bad fantasy football analysis superstitious fantasy football analysis, believing in the home field effect that doesn't exist. I have a better explanation, one that makes sense, one that's not rooted in superstition. The Ben Roethlisberger is breaking down. And when your body is breaking down, you see this with older NBA players. It's fascinating to watch the aging process. You can see Dwayne Wade go up and come up short on a dunk, and it's embarrassing. And then in the next game, He's going coast to coast like old Dwayne Wade. And you're, how did this happen? Well, because when an older broken body is awoken in the morning, you never know which body parts are going to hurt and which ones are going to be working properly. And that's how you get these inconsistent performances from the aging veterans. Now, some players like Tom Brady and Drew Brees have figured out how to avoid this. Others like Ben Roethlisberger and Carson Palmer have not. The problem with Ben Roethlisberger is he's already 35 but he has the body of a 45-year-old. Look at the injury history. Go to playerprofiler.com. Scroll down to medical history report. Click view all. And you will see meniscus tears, which he did not allow to heal. Ben Roethlisberger tore his meniscus last year, was supposed to be out six weeks, came back in two weeks. The year before that, he sprained his MCL. In the same year, he sprained his foot and the AC joint in his shoulder, as well as suffered a concussion. A few years earlier, he tore his rotator cuff, so he has a torn shoulder, which recurred in 2015, and the strength and stability of his knee has been degraded. What does a quarterback need in order to execute throws on the football field? A strong base and a strong arm. He has neither of those. And it's intuitive when you watch Ben Roethlisberger play, he doesn't play like Eli Manning plays. The moment Eli Manning senses pressure, he hits the deck, he goes down and protects himself. Ben Roethlisberger refuses to protect himself, and he refuses to go down when pressured. He has defenders pulling 
and grabbing and hanging from him as he is trying desperately to unleash the ball while in the grasp. And you see the pain and anguish on his face as he releases the ball and he gets hit in the sternum. His body gets twisted in the wrong direction and he goes down in a heap and he takes a long time to get up. At this point in his career, Ben Roethlisberger can no longer practice. I talked to Tony Saragusa about this and he said, this is a very bad sign for a player. I've been around players that couldn't practice and they weren't in the league very long once they reached that state where their body could no longer get up to practice any longer. They were simply game day players. You can do that for a year or two, but it is a significant warning signal. It should be no surprise that Ben Roethlisberger is ready to retire at age 35. This is when quarterbacks typically retire. The quarterback that plays out to age 40 is an outlier. Steve DeBerg was a famous outlier at the position, but now we assume every quarterback is going to have a Steve DeBerg career arc and play into his 40s. Tom Brady, no problem. Drew Brees, here we go. On to 39, straight to 40. But it shouldn't surprise you when a player that's taken the punishment that Ben Roethlisberger has taken reaches 35 and his body is ready to give up. And when your body feels physically broken, it impacts your mental state as well. And this is why Ben Roethlisberger took weeks to commit to playing in 2017. I believe he was genuinely contemplating retirement and he is one more knee sprain, one more torn shoulder muscle from retirement. And then who do the Pittsburgh Steelers turn to? Landry Jones? Did you see the Antonio Brown game log from 2015 when Ben Roethlisberger played versus when Landry Jones played? Week four with Landry Jones, nine fantasy points. Week five with Landry Jones, 7.5 fantasy points. Week six with Landry Jones, 5.4 fantasy points in 2015. This is 2015, a year in which Antonio Brown led all wide receivers in fantasy points per game with 23.8. Did all of his damage when Ben Roethlisberger was in the game. So what do you think is going to happen to Antonio Brown's fantasy output after Ben Roethlisberger retires? This is a real concern that nobody talks about. I talk about it on every podcast I go on and no one wants to talk about it. I don't want to hear it. There's this cognitive dissonance around the Ben Roethlisberger retirement. It's going to happen soon. It's real. Get ready and feel free to stop drafting Antonio Brown in the top three in Dynasty Startups. He's going to be 29 years old and he's not going to have a quarterback. What are you thinking? I don't own any Pittsburgh Steelers with the exception of Eli Rogers and Le'Veon Bell in Dynasty Leagues. That's it. It starts and ends with those two players. I don't own any Antonio Brown. I don't own any Martavis Bryant. I don't own any Juju Smith-Schuster. I certainly don't own any Ladarius Green. Now, when you look at Antonio Brown, even though he suffered through three games with Landry Jones, still posted almost 24 fantasy points per game in 2015, then he enjoyed 14 games with Ben Roethlisberger the following year. So Brown had more games with Roethlisberger in 2016 than he did in 2015, and yet his fantasy output dropped substantially from 23.8 fantasy points per game to 20.5 fantasy points per game. That's a significant decline. Any fantasy football receiver experiences a more than three points per game decline in their fantasy output, and warning bells go off around Fantasyland with the exception of Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown has now gotten to a place where he's infallible, where the mythology has usurped the reality. And whenever we see the mythology supplant 
the reality, that's when we step in and say, be careful. This player is now overrated. This is what we said about Rob Gronkowski last year. He's being drafted in the first and second round based on mythology, not based on reality. And that's what's happening now with Antonio Brown. You still see in redraft fantasy gamers drafting Antonio Brown before either David Johnson, Ezekiel Elliott, or Le'Veon Bell. And that's just absurd. You can't do that. Those players dominated Antonio Brown in fantasy points per game last year, and they likely will again this year. Now, I mentioned I own Eli Rogers. Well, I picked up Eli Rogers before the team drafted Juju Smith-Schuster. So I have zero recently acquired Eli Rogers on my team. And by the way, I don't own shares in quotes of Eli Rogers. Please, enough with the finance terms in fantasy football. Please don't call players shares and talk about your exposure to certain players and the market share receiving yards, the market share receiving touchdowns. What does that mean? It's just their yardage share. It's just their touchdown share. There's no reason to say market. It's inelegant. Adding the word market is superfluous and creates a nonsensical nomenclature. To market means to find a buyer and a seller and to agree on a price. It has nothing to do with a receiver's share of passing yards, passing touchdowns, targets. It is a nonsense term. I don't know when and where it started, but it needs to end. This is not corporate finance. You're not running a hedge fund. It's fantasy football. Get over yourselves. I really need to wind down my number of shares in this player. I just have too much exposure right now. I didn't like his receiving yards market share in 2016. I need to wind down my exposure. Who the fuck do you think you are? Warren Buffett? You run a fantasy football team. Glad my training in corporate finance is paying off. I have a well-balanced portfolio of fantasy players on my teams. <laughs> At least that's not as bad as... Calling yourself an elite mafia. Yeah, I saw that. Hashtag elite mafia. What the hell does that mean? You're not corporate finance executives. You own a goddamn fantasy team and you're not in the mafia. God, that is beyond doucheville. That is clown town. That's what it is. The people that call players shares and talk about a player's market share, they live in doucheville. But the elite mafia people, they live in clown town. How about that? Call yourself the mafia. The hell is that? How many people did you kill to get David Johnson? Oh, none. That's right. Because you're not actually participating in organized crime. You run a fantasy team! <laughs> it's fantasy football, not organized crime, you self-important posers. <laughs> but last year, Antonio Brown did finished number six in the NFL in target market share with 27.8%. Or just target share. A more elegant and succinct way of describing Antonio Brown's percentage of team targets. <laughs> what was Martavis Bryant's target share last year? Oh, I'm sorry. What was Martavis Bryant's target market share last year? Sorry, I need to switch over to CNBC to talk about my fantasy team. He didn't have one because Martavis Bryant didn't play last year. Just another player on the Steelers team that should terrify you. He's one positive drug test away from being banned for life from the NFL. Yeah, this is going to go well. We should draft him in the early rounds of Dynasty Startups, right? Yeah, what could go wrong? Except 
his value is vaporized in a day. Just that. That's it. So, Ben Roethlisberger, terrifying. Antonio Brown, terrifying. Martavis Bryant, terrifying. Eli Rogers, now irrelevant. Juju Smith-Schuster, terrifying as well. We had Juju Smith-Schuster ranked ahead of Chris Godwin on our post-draft rookie rankings. Seemed right, right? But then I was in a rookie draft, and I had the decision to make Juju Smith-Schuster or Chris Godwin. And sometimes a ranking is so close... The evaluation is just so razor thin, the difference, that you actually have to be faced with this decision in real life in order to rank the player properly. And I realized, oh no, oh no, oh no, I don't have Juju Smith-Schuster ranked ahead of Chris Godwin. No, no, oh no, oh oh no, 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 no. Oh, it's absolutely Chris Godwin. So then I had to change the rankings. Go to the rankings. Check them out. Playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. We have rookie rankings and post-draft dynasty rankings up to date based on my actual real life preferences after going through a series of dynasty rookie drafts. I'm in a bunch of these patron leagues. The listener leagues are strong. The state of the Patreon program is strong. Lots of fun listener leagues. Go to patreon.com, search Podfather, and join the community. Get some gear. Get an extra show every week. And you can qualify for one of our listener leagues. We'll have redraft leagues launching in the next couple months. So be on the lookout for that. Whether it's redraft, whether it's dynasty, I think Juju Smith-Schuster should absolutely fall below Chris Godwin in the rankings because Juju Smith-Schuster is at best the number three wide receiver and he's only 20 years old. So if you're 20 years old, you're probably not ready to contribute in week one. So you shouldn't be surprised if Eli Rogers is actually the number three receiver to start the year and Juju Smith-Schuster is the number four receiver. It's very difficult to get excited about the number four receiver on any team in dynasty or redraft. And because he's very young, it's going to take some time for him to get acclimated to the NFL and to become a contributor. And now think it through. Do the thought experiment. What's going to happen? He takes a year or two to fully develop, to acquire the skills that he needs to be an every week contributor, a playmaker at the NFL level, someone that's going to help your fantasy team. And just as he is starting his ascent, Juju Smith-Schuster is going to lose his quarterback to injury or retirement. So just as he is on the verge of contributing to your fantasy team, he's going to have his quarterback yanked out from under him, and it's going to be Landry Jones back there distributing the ball to Antonio Brown and maybe anyone else if he can get through his read progression. That sounds fantastic if you're a Juju Smith-Schuster owner. I mean, it's a best-case scenario because it does sound great when Juju Smith-Schuster gets drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers and he'll be paired with Ben Roethlisberger. The instant reaction to Juju Smith-Schuster going to Pittsburgh was a positive one for me. But then once you start to think it through and you start to consider all the ramifications, you start to think, oh no, ew, this isn't actually very good. I would rather have Chris Godwin, who's ready to step in and be the number three receiver now for a quarterback that's going to be in the league for the next 15 years and could conceivably be a top five fantasy quarterback in 2017. That's why Chris Godwin is the choice over Juju Smith-Schuster in rookie drafts. Now, for the most terrifying player of all, Ladarius Green. We've talked on the show about why I'm so afraid of Jordan Reed. Jordan Reed is one hit away from being forced to retire due to head trauma. 
And so is Ladarius Green. Ladarius Green and Jordan Reed are in the same health situation. Ladarius Green could not stay on the field last year because he would play and then the concussion symptoms would resurface and he would have to sit out weeks of practice and couldn't play in games. Ladarius Green only played in six games last year, so he missed the majority of 2016 because of head trauma. And we've seen some of the hits that Ladarius Green has taken in his career. Been vicious. We talked about the hit that Brandon Browner leveled on Ladarius Green. It was a dirty hit. It should not be allowed in the sport. And now Ladarius Green is paying the price. I loved Ladarius Green's potential when he was on the Chargers. Looked forward to him taking over as Antonio Gates' heir, but that never materialized. He ended up in Pittsburgh. Now he's on the most volatile offense week to week in the NFL. Again, no team's production oscillates more week to week than the Pittsburgh Steelers. So Green went from a consistently prolific offense in San Diego to a highly inconsistent offense in Pittsburgh. And now his health has deteriorated to such an extent that there's no guarantee he's going to play a snap in 2017. Ladarius Green's concussion symptoms in 2016 were worse than Jordan Reed's. And Ladarius Green's not as good as Jordan Reed. So he's the most terrifying of all the players on the Steelers. I feel like every member of the Steelers is wearing one of those scream masks. Just not drafting any of them if their name is not Le'Veon Bell. And the rookie draft that I mentioned earlier where I drafted Chris Godwin over Juju Smith-Schuster, that was on Reality Sports Online. And it was the most fun I had all season because it was not a slow draft. We did a live draft on Reality Sports Online. It took 10 minutes instead of taking an excruciating two days to get through four rounds, which is what you get on My Fantasy League. Just droning on as your competitors milk the clock spamming out trade offers that have no hope of being accepted. And then finally, they relent and they draft their players. And it's just miserable. Slow drafts are just excruciating. But on Reality Sports Online, it was different. It's just a much more enjoyable platform to play fantasy football. I enjoy it as a commissioner because the setup is much easier. And I enjoy it as a player because it's faster and easier to do a draft, manage your team. Now, Reality Sports Online has both sophistication and simplicity. That's the beauty of it because they support IDP leagues and you can completely mimic the experience of being an NFL general manager and create a 32 team league on reality sports online. Now our league, just 12 teams. So you can do a standard 12 team league with normal parameters, or you can create an entire shadow league that mimics the NFL. It's brilliant. I love it. They have a free agent auction room. I'm excited to do the free agent auction. That's coming up in a week. They have contract functionality, everything you would want. Go to Reality Sports Online, set up a new Dynasty League today, or port over your existing Dynasty League to Reality Sports Online. And when you sign up, use the promo code UNDERWORLD to receive 10% off. Fantasy football just got real at Reality Sports Online. Now, now we're going to bring on a guest, Zach Whitman. Zach Whitman is an athleticism connoisseur like myself. Also like myself, he once was a part of the Field Gulls brand. We have a podcast called the Sonic Truth Podcast, which originally was a Field Gulls podcast. Zach Whitman was a writer for Field Gulls for many years. That's how I know him. Follow him at ZJ Whitman on Twitter. Check out his work at 3SigmaAthlete.com. The number three, Sigma Athlete 
all one word.com. He does great work. And we'll ask him about Juju Smith-Schuster. Is he buying or selling Steelers players in Dynasty Leagues? Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio program. Zach Whitman. Zach Whitman's the owner of Three Sigma Athlete. I know Zach from his time at Field Gulls. I'm excited to have him on the program today. Zach Whitman, talk to me. Hey, Matt. Really good to be on. Thanks for having me. Well, we're going to jump right into it. This is early. Zach and I are up before the sun has risen in the east. We are at it. We're going to have energy at 5.30 in the morning, believe it or not, because we're professionals. Well, you are. You are. I'm, 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 it's, up, it's up for debate. Yeah, you're a professional. Just say it. Okay. It just rolls off okay. the tongue very easily. I'm a professional. <laughs> okay. I'm actually not, but I've been doing this for a week. I'm a pro. Don't worry. I got you. So we had this draft, and it was fine. It was a good draft. Congratulations, NFL. You did it again. Yay. We're interested, you know, and we're still interested. We're still talking about it. So congratulations, NFL. So looking back, what was your favorite draft day maneuver pick, you know, based on upside and value? It's, it's really boring, but I guess I, I pretty much, uh, I think a lot, a lot of analytics people like it whenever really just teams trade down. Yes. And the most obvious version of that, right, was the... Chicago San Francisco trade where Chicago traded I think it was two-thirds and a fourth move of a spot to take a quarterback that no one wanted at number two uh, so San Francisco kind of made out like bandits there I'm not sure I'm a fan of what San Francisco did later in the draft using some of those picks to trade up again take a guy who's like has one arm but you know overall it's just in- his one arm well Ruben Foster apparently yeah that might be amputated I don't know it looks uh looks a little a little sketchy might miss his rookie year um, with some kind of shoulder injury. Oh, I, no, I, think I, I saw some this. Quote that, like, I saw a quote that his his surgery didn't take, which seems like an incredible like 1900s way to describe surgery. Oh, it didn't take. Oh, my God. Well, a lot of those Alabama defensive players, you know, they come back for their senior year like Jonathan Allen, and they pay the price. The ultimate price is that your body is more broken as you head into your profession. That's what you don't want. Somehow, some way, they get the Reuben Fosters and the Jonathan Allens to buy in and not come out, because Jonathan Allen would have been a top 10 pick in 2016 had he come out. But somehow, some way, the brainwashing system that Nick Saban has implemented at Alabama is convincing these players to come back and sacrifice their bodies for free as seniors when they're projected to be top 10 picks. <laughs> and then they lose millions of dollars in the exchange because they go from top 10 draft picks to fringe first rounders. That's the Alabama way. Thanks, Nick Saban. Appreciate you. I don't have an arm, thanks to you. To be clear, I am not criticizing Nick Saban because I'm a little scared of him. So just to be clear, that is that is you, uh, the host, and I... If- Oh, I'll criticize Nick Saban all day. Nick Saban's the devil. Okay. I'm just saying when he comes for you, um, I just want to be clear that I was not <laughs> I was not part of this team because... Someone's knocking at the door. Let me go check. Oh, no! Ah! So it was both your favorite and least favorite maneuver. It was your favorite maneuver on the 49ers side, and it was your least favorite maneuver on the Chicago Bears side. I mean, what are the Chicago Bears doing? I don't know. We know what they're doing, actually. It's not a secret. They're desperate for a quarterback because they have a win-now coach. They have a win-now front office, 
and they don't have a quarterback. So when you're in win-now mode and you're coaching and you're managing for your job, that's what happens. That's why you see the Houston Texans and the Chicago Bears mortgaging their future. Would you give the Texans or the Bears any chance whatsoever to win a Super Bowl this year or make a deep run at least? No, right? No. That's the crazy thing. No. They're all destined to be fired and then their franchise will be adrift without draft picks it's just how bad franchises stay bad it's like if your credit history would change every three years so you didn't you didn't really work to like improve the long-term credit history you just spent as much as you could in a limited amount of time to try to make a bunch of money on some terrible investments because you're thinking like i may not be around anyway but that kind of instability just leads to more and more gambling and more and more spending on credit. And then the next person has even less to work with. And it's just this horrible cycle we do. It's the perpetual negative feedback loop that the bad teams are trapped in. And they're investing in quarterbacks, which take more time to develop than almost any other position. Quarterback, tight end are the two positions that take the longest to develop. So you're mortgaging the future for a quarterback that you're going to get today that's not going to help you for at least two years, you could say, you know, I know we had Ben Roethlisberger go to an AFC championship game in his rookie season and then win a Super Bowl in his sophomore season. That's very rare. It's an extreme outlier that you have a rookie quarterback or a sophomore quarterback make a deep run. So you have to say, okay, two-year time horizon just to get these quarterbacks ramped up. If Deshaun Watson's even good, which we don't know. If Mitchell Trubisky's even good, which we don't know. So what they're doing is mortgaging their house and putting it on black on the roulette wheel. And you just don't want your franchise managing its assets in this fashion. And then you see what the Patriots are doing, and you see what the Cleveland Browns are doing, and you're like, oh, that's how it should be done. It's obvious when you see these moves play out. Oh, Clearly, it's intuitive. This is correct, right? The Cleveland Browns are on the right track. I don't think the turnaround's really going to happen quite yet, but I do think it's, I mean, what they're doing is really smart, and they've started to actually look at things in the correct way, which is that we're really bad, and we need to be less bad in five years and actually be sustainably good, and they just started building assets on assets on assets. Uh, it's basically like, I can't remember who says this, frequently but essentially teams trading up are just paying to flip the coin and call you know call heads or tails and the browns are like you know what we're probably not that good at valuation we don't think you're that good at evaluation we don't really know who the best players are we're going to take the best chances we can we're going to take um the the very very best we think but we still think those odds are fairly low that those are going to be star players because this is such a crapshoot and there's taking tons and tons of players and it just seems like every year they're going to have like an increasing number of first round picks so in 10 years they'll have half the first round off of one trade from you know 2015 yes. or whatever yes. it's, it's, it's awesome yes it's a pyramid scheme and they're the top of the pyramid i love it that's really how you can think of it those that are trading down are humble those that are trading up are arrogant because they believe they're better evaluators than others. And those that understand, oh, this is very difficult. And no one knows exactly what these players will ultimately become. And because we're armed with this knowledge, the known unknown, we're going to go ahead and trade down. And we're going to continue to stockpile picks and stockpile picks and stockpile assets. That's what Cleveland's doing. They're ready to not be bottom of the league anymore. 
you shouldn't be surprised when Cleveland goes six and ten, seven and nine. Ooh. That shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that the tanking process is over. They are ready to start competing every Sunday. I would be pretty surprised, I think, with six or seven wins this year. Um, I I could see probably like four or five. But hey, let me sell you on this. Offensive line's been bolstered. They have great tackle play. Now they have great guard play from free agency. Running game, one of the most efficient running games in the league last year with Isaiah Crowell and Duke Johnson, both near the top of the league in yards per touch. Wide receivers, Corey Coleman, he's ascending. An exciting electric talent at the wide receiver position, and they got the best value wide receiver in free agency in Kenny Britt. Now you add David Njoku, suddenly you have an above-average passing game. Now, the defensive side, they got two of the better defenders in this draft class. The best, Miles Garrett, and maybe the most versatile in Jabril Peppers. So the defense still has work to do, but I think the offense is going to surprise a lot of people, and that's how you get to 7-9. and nine. Who do do we think the quarterback is there? Is that Kaiser? Well, that's the thing. If Kaiser is good, then who knows? If Kaiser's not good, then you have Cody Kessler, and Cody Kessler was better than advertised last year. I mean, the most under-the-radar decent season. I mean, I can't believe I called it an under-the-radar decent season. That is just such a backhanded compliment. But the the under-the-radar decent season of all the quarterbacks last year was Cody Kessler. He feels a lot like Andy Dalton, someone that's never going to be appreciated, but he can put together some pretty efficient seasons when called upon. We'll see. We'll see if he can be Andy Dalton. That's his ceiling. I think we will see. I just remember that his first play watching Red Zone last year, I think pretty sure in his first game he ran out the back of the end zone accidentally like he did not mean to run out the back of the end zone but he did and um i feel like oh, it's no. kind of scarred on me like the first exposure to somebody you know is like something so horrible dan alorski <laughs> the dan alorski effect that's what it does the mm. dan alorski effect will scar your brain tissue watching a quarterback just weave his way out of the end zone Losing all his bearings on the football field, that is a jarring sensation. I will agree with you on that for sure. So you're watching the first round unfold. You see Corey Davis go at pick five. When Corey Davis was drafted at pick five, the first person I thought about was Dalvin Cook. Because I thought to myself, Dalvin Cook at this very moment has to have this sinking feeling that he absolutely should have faked an injury before the combine like Corey Davis. Do you agree? I mean, I absolutely. I don't understand why these guys test. Leonard Fournette decides not to do the short shuttle and the three-cone drill. He does the 40, which is okay. He does the jumps that are terrible. I think everyone kind of expected to see some pretty poor agility drills because he's a big guy, you know, doesn't steer that well. Kind of like Derrick Henry last year didn't have the most exceptional agility drills. But he, he just says, no, I'm not going to do it. And he ends up going a full round ahead of where Derrick Henry went. Even the Derrick Henry did test better and had better jumps than he did. Yeah. Um, it, it's just crazy. And then look at like uh, Trent Richardson, for example. If Trent Richardson comes in, even five years ago when he was drafted, if he comes in and he puts up like a four-five-five 5 short shuttle and a 29-inch vert and a four-five-nine forty or whatever it is, do we really think he goes number three to Cleveland? No way. Like, I, just, I just don't understand. These guys are at Exos, right? They know exactly how they're going to test in the, in the Jolly Dolls. They know what the jumps are. They're not surprised by any of this. Right. If you're testing that poorly, I don't understand – any way that you don't, you know, tweak a calf 
at the start of the combine and decide yes. that you can't test because you're just costing yourself millions and millions of dollars because teams are optimistic. If you don't test and they like your tape, they're going to say, you know, he probably is pretty athletic. I think he looks pretty athletic. It's really like the cold light of day when these guys test. So it's just, it's crazy to me that they don't have someone in their ear telling them like, do not test. You are a great prospect. You're going to go high. Testing can only hurt you. You have a 28 in vertical. Don't do it, Dalvin. It's interesting though, because like, don't do it, Dalvin. 15, 16 years ago, uh, when Miami had the big 2001 class, like none of them tested. So it was much more common actually, um, longer ago, that players who were projected to go high just wouldn't test. They'd skip it and say they were going to, you know, um, their tape was good enough and they were going to go high anyway. But now it seems like all these guys that aren't going to test well just test. I mean, it's great for us because we get more information. I don't want to have a bunch of incomplete data out there. Right. But I just don't understand why they do it. I loved Corey Davis's timeline. Yeah, I hurt my foot. and But don't worry. It's going to be fine. In fact, it's going to be healed fully on April 27th. <laughs> I can't really do a pro day either because, yeah, it's just not quite ready. But when the draft happens, I'll be 100%. Oh, wow, that's perfect. Thank you, Corey. That's so great to hear that you're not going to be healthy during the evaluation process, but on draft day, you'll be fine. That's great. Thank you. This is exciting stuff. Looking back at this Leonard Fournette pick, it was a reach. We can agree with that. Who would you rather have if you're an NFL team? You're drafting an NFL team tomorrow. You're picking Derrick Henry. You're picking Leonard Fournette. Derrick Henry. Yes, Derrick Henry's better than Leonard Fournette. Yeah. By any rational evaluation, yes, Derrick Henry's the guy. Derrick Henry has a much higher spark score, even if you start to estimate what the agility drills would have been for those players. You have to say, yeah, Derrick Henry, because of the explosion, he has a significantly better burst score than Leonard Fournette. His spark score would have been higher. So which of the teams in the NFL care the most about metrics like spark? And by the way, you were... The original Spark Gangster, you back calculated the Nike Spark score years ago for field goals, right? Yeah, I guess that was like uh, 2014, maybe. Um, it's interesting now. There's, I think, the it's much different, I guess, online now than it was three years ago, where testing is almost like omnipresent and everyone's kind of aware of it. And like you read a draft recap wherever, and they talk about like being a sub, you know, sub tester or whatever, you know, a good tester and stuff that just wasn't really in the lexicon three years ago. But it's really cool now that it seems like it is pretty common and people know what they're talking about. And I think we're actually at risk of almost swinging the other way where we, we don't know how to treat athleticism because we think it's too important or we think test scores are, are, you know, good test scores mean you're gonna be a good player but you think we're at risk of that happening that's already happening that's one of my biggest problems as a person who publishes athleticism data so many run out to the extremes and say oh well, this guy has a 95th percentile catch radius he must be amazing at football whoa 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 hold on hold on it's just a data point at the end of the day spark is just a data point and some nfl teams are using it some are not but we shouldn't use it as the only number that matters. Absolutely not. Their production on the football field always matters more than anything that happens at Indianapolis. I, I guess what I mean by that is that I think actually the NFL draft, the teams themselves are actually pretty close to efficiently drafting athleticism. Really? Not efficiently drafting players overall, but it seems like it's changed a lot in the last few years. So which teams are using it the best? I would, I mean... Always the uh, Ron Wolf, Al Davis teams 
um, tree teams. And so specifically that's Kansas City, uh, Seattle, Oakland, and Green Bay. And then also in that potentially we're kind of you know under probationary watch as we look is Indianapolis with Chris Ballard who came from Kansas City. Ah. I know there's quite enough data there to actually know what they're going to do, but my suspicion is they're going to kind of follow the same kind of track um, once we see you know two, three years of data of who they're going after. Um, and then a few teams that have kind of jumped on the bandwagon without that obvious link are the Cowboys and Steelers in recent years where they've definitely prioritized over other teams and especially since those teams had a history of kind of being sammy coats much <laughs> i would point more to like martavis bryant and uh like bud dupree and everybody sammy i mean i was not a fan of sammy coats coming out oh they overdrafted him based on athleticism that's what happened yeah i i think that was even that's a pick that would have happened before the composite scores i think that was like the 40 thing I, I think Sammy Coates would go pretty much the same in any draft from like 99 to current because teams have always had that fascination. I mean, who was it that the, the Raiders took one year, like 10 years ago, way earlier than Chicago because he ran a 4-2 something? Darius Hayward Bay. Right. So I, I think that's always been at play. And I think that's almost more just speed than it is athleticism. I think teams still have a thing where they fall for that certain kind of player. And really, uh, we do see this like in history of the NFL, right? People fall for prototypes of players that just end up being bust more often than not. And still, there is this like this allure to these guys who run, you know, the four three five and have the height and have the um, just the length and just look like the right players, but you know, can't catch, and that ends up being a detriment. I would argue that Chris Godwin falling outside the first two rounds of oh. his composite athletic profile shows that inefficiencies still exist in NFL front offices in terms of appreciating athleticism. Of the combine drills that make up this composite profile of a player's athleticism, which drills do you pay the closest attention to across positions? That's an interesting question. I mean, first of all, um, one thing I like to do is look at not just the the score or specific test, but the overall profile of the score. So like the question there, the hypothesis you're really testing is like, is this the kind of athlete, have we seen this kind of athlete be successful in the NFL before? So I'll give you an example. Seattle picked um, Malik McDowell in the early second round, right? And he was... Um, Incredible pick. Right. I, I'm super excited about it. I mean, just ridiculous that he's in the, the second round. I, I'm sorry. I, I know I'm derailing here, but I can't believe that Malik McDowell falls out of the first round. What the hell's happening, NFL? Well, I mean, if he had tested better, he probably wouldn't have fallen to the second round, but he tested kind of... You know, yeah, he's a tackle! Yeah. He was in the upper percentile across all those drills for tackles. Jesus Christ! Kevin King outside the first round? Get out of here! I mean, you're preaching at the choir there. Right? This Jesus. is like the Kevin King, King fan account here. Oh, you're a Kevin King fan account. Oh, <laughs> thank you. He's amazing. <laughs> He's amazing. He's only the best <laughs> cornerback of all time. He's already better than Deion Sanders in my mind. I mean, he's second to Deion, but yeah, he's up there. Yes, second to Deion. Tyus Bowser in the second round. Yep. Obi Melanfonwu in the second round. Joe Mixon in the second round. Rekwon McMillan in the second round. Oh, my God. Even Chidobe Awuzi in the second round. Just ridiculous. Ridiculous. David and Joku almost made it there, too. I can't believe he fell as far as he did. Ridiculous. That's another team that I think should be on your list of probationary athleticism snob teams. Cleveland Browns. Oh, I, yeah. They, they actually, we have we have two years on them. And they, they not only have done athleticism right because that's one metric, but they also have, I think their first four picks were all incredibly underaged. 
So that's a team that's really trying to take a bite of that apple. Like we're going to take as many picks as possible. They're going to be young, they're going to be athletic, and they're often going to be college productive, right? Age-adjusted production, size-adjusted athleticism. That's what the Cleveland Browns are focusing on. (laughs) Full body shiver right there. My extremities are tingling right now. I love the Cleveland Browns so much. I couldn't have cared less about the Cleveland Browns two years ago. At this point in time, I've never loved a franchise more than the Cleveland Browns. Oh, keep talking, please. That's, that's strong. But uh, I guess what I would say is, I think I was talking about specific profiles, and Malik McDowell didn't have the best test overall, right? He's, he tested fine, he had above average for a prospect and everything. But if you look at players who kind of fit his specific profile, which was really good 10 split, good vertical, good broad, um, at a certain weight and height. He's, you know, he's a tall dude, 6'6", um, 300 or whatever. But there's a lot of dudes like in that range, even if they weren't the Aaron Donald testers in the class, were still really good, like John Henderson, Leonard Williams. So that's the kind of thing too, like not just the score, but is this the kind of thing that's been productive before? Have players succeeded with this kind of profile? The comps, man, the comps. We had the top five comps at playerprofiler.com. All of Malik McDowell's comps, his best one is Leonard Williams, as you said, but they're all quality players. Yep. Jonathan Allen didn't have any on his profile. Look at his comps. They're awful. Yep. If Pernell McPhee is the type of player you're going for, then go ahead and draft Jonathan Allen. But you need to draft Malik McDowell over a Jonathan Allen just based on the comps alone. Yeah, and the Seahawks got him not only at, what, 36 or whatever, but also with trade downs. They picked up a ton of other picks. So that felt, I mean, that was a that was certainly one of my favorite moves too. Um, but yeah, in terms of like specific tests, I guess 10 split is really important to me when I'm looking at anything anything um, on the lines, I would say. Uh, agility for defensive, defensive linemen, like uh, edge rushers. And then uh, for corners, you really do look at having some top-end speed and that shuttle result. Um, for receivers, you obviously want to see a little top-end speed, but there's also how they win. So guys who are more vertical, you do want to know that they have some kind of length and a vertical to win. Well, I guess I would say it's more than a, an individual test. You look at a given player and how they win, and you look and see, is that backed up in their testing? Is this something that I can kind of see? And then you, and you take that back, right? Because you're saying it's one data point. Testing is a great data point to ask yourself a question because really we have too much certainty. We look at these players, we watch them on tape, and we develop an opinion that's pretty strong, regardless of the fact that these players could be in the NFL for three years and we could still be fighting about whether they're good or not. We don't even know. There's no like ultimate test to say, is Jarvis Landry a top 10 receiver? Because people still fight about it. Oh, Jarvis Landry, why did you have to bring him up? Of all the players to bring up, you had to say Jarvis Landry. He's overrated. I only specialize in very strong, strident opinions about every player. Is he good or is he bad? Jarvis Landry, I don't know. He's definitely not definitely good. It's, it seems like to me he does get schemed a lot, but it's so hard to adjust for that. And so it feels like some players in certain situations will, will kind of never know how good they are. Um, but we act like we can tell from college whether those players are good or not. And that's the thing that seems crazy to me, like the certainty we apply. And so to me, what testing can really do in a lot of cases is you look and see how a player wins. You look at their tests, they kind of correlate to that. So if it's a, if it's a receiver who wins, you know, on the, on the sideline a lot, you know, those contested catches, what does he do there? 
Uh, and you go back to the tape and say, how did this guy test? Is this something I'm seeing? Is this something I think could pop up? A lot of similar players like this have failed. Is this something I'm worried about? What does this player do differently than those players who have failed? His comps who have failed? Is he just that player again? And I think by asking those questions, you do get a lot of stuff beyond just, is he a good tester or not? You should you should be like provoking yourself to go deeper and understand your own biases, what's come before. And if you say, like, I liked this guy two years ago who had the same testing and kind of the same thing, and he was bad. What makes this one different, or am I just falling for the same thing again? Yeah, example. Go watch Chris Conley at Georgia. You do not see a player who's winning with verticality. That's not how he won at Georgia. He didn't actually translate his athleticism, his 146.0, 100th percentile burst score on playerprofiler.com into on-field production. 29.3% dominator rating was 48th percentile. So Chris Conley was not translating his athletic gifts into production like a Demarius Thomas did, for example. A great example in this particular draft, Jehu Chesson, because you can see, oh, Jehu Chesson, incredible catch radius. 1029, 93rd percentile catch radius on playerprofiler.com. His Workout metrics are 75th percentile or above across the board, burst, agility, everything, but his dominator rating only 23.9%, 32nd percentile. Now, I understand part of that is because he's sharing a field with Jake Butt and Amara Darbo, but that's still way too low for someone with that athletic profile. Go back, watch the tape of Jehu Cheston, and you think, oh, okay, so I don't think this guy is going to fire in the NFL because I'm not seeing the athleticism and the production converge, and that, to me, is the biggest red flag of all. Yeah, and I think we're better at evaluating wide receivers to some extent. We're so good at evaluating wide receivers now, by the way. At least there's like the street statistics to read from, right? We can say like this guy had whatever market share and dominator rating. Like there's actual stuff we have, whereas you can never do that for, for other positions. And wide receiver might be the almost the, the easiest to discretize and really predict, you know, along with running back. Um, but like, I guess I can't really talk because I have my own underperforming Michigan receiver on my team, the Seahawks, to deal with. So Yes, tell us about Amara Darbo. You're a Seahawks guy. They drafted Amara Darbo, a position they needed. They need wide receiver help, but in particular, they needed a big X receiver on the outside. That was the missing piece in the Seattle passing game. Do you think Amara Darbo can be that guy? It sounds like you don't. It's, it's interesting. So the Seahawks have extremely specific roles for players, and you can kind of see these trips to cycle through um, what they want from guys. And Darbo fits that role perfectly, like for what the Seahawks want. I just don't, I'm not convinced that what they want is worth a third round pick. He, he's an athletic guy, you know, he's pretty big. He, he can, he can, he can do some, some cool things. What can he do? They want a fourth receiver who can be a great special teams guy. The, the Seahawks love to have their receivers on the punt block team, weirdly enough, and they love um, some good kick coverage, right? And so what they wanted from him is a guy who can kind of like play probably 20 offensive snaps a game as a rookie, catch two to three balls per game, and play really good special teams. And basically the Jermaine Curse 2013, if you will. And that's fine, and that's a productive player, and that's a contributor. And I'm glad they are intentional about what they do, and they do the same things repeat it, repeatedly, and they really try to be consistent. But I just don't see the value for that player when Jermaine Curse was an undrafted free agent. Other players they've had kind of in the special teams roles and playing fourth receiver have been scrappy pickups they've made very productive. And now they're spending a third-round pick on a guy who 
I, I guess he kind of has pretty okay production stats in college, but nothing phenomenal. He's a pretty good athlete, but not like a superstar athlete. And he just doesn't seem like the kind of guy who's actually going to draw and be a target hog or anything. Um, I think ultimately his success in Seattle will come down to how good he is at scramble drill, because regardless of his production in college, pretty much with, with Russell Wilson, it comes down to that for a third rounder. Ugh. Oh, absolutely. Well, the, the way the Seahawks have the receivers, right? They don't really have any high volume. And so if Darbo is really good at scramble drill and he's catching two balls a game, you know, for 20 yards a catch that are scramble drill, like we've seen some receivers be able to do in Seattle that really do specialize there, that's fine. But I never see him being the kind of player who puts up, you know, like a thousand yards in a season or or really big stats because the Seahawks just don't do that with that kind of player. Um, they're a really weird team, man. Uh, they they spend pretty valuable picks on guys who are you know fit into very specific roles. That's interesting because I think they make some incredible picks, like with this Malik McDowell, not only getting a first rounder in the second round, acquiring other picks in the process. <laughs> that might have been my favorite maneuver of the entire draft was the Seattle Seahawks trading down and getting Malik McDowell because at the time I was dead certain that Seattle would take Kevin King. He fit their profile perfectly. A perceived need with Richard Sherman aging out of the position shortly. So I was locked into this assumption that the Seattle Seahawks would draft Kevin King. And when they traded out of that pick, I was devastated. And then to see them get Malik McDowell was just perfect. That's just so Seahawks. It's why they keep winning. We talk about Houston, we talk about Chicago, the perpetual negative feedback loop that those teams are trapped in. Well, there's a perpetual positive feedback loop that Seattle continues to enjoy churning out talent, but they do make mistakes. I mean, the Amara Darbo pick was a mistake. Why? Because you could have had Taewon Taylor. <sighs> Taewon Taylor is the heir to the Doug Baldwin throne. Why not take the next Doug Baldwin? Doug Baldwin's 28 now. He's past the age apex. Why not reload with the next Doug Baldwin for Russell Wilson's 30s? Why not do that? Why are you taking a guy so he can play and kick coverage? Well, you know, I, I completely understand that. I have the same frustrations. The Seahawks, though, have a history of missing on big receivers in the fourth round. So stop doing it! Basically just a fourth-round pick, right? This is the team that took Kevin Norwood and um, Chris Durham. They drafted Chris Durham? He was a draft pick? Chris Durham was a fourth round draft pick. No. Yeah. What? Pretty sure I'm. I'm gonna. You're, it's early here. It's like six o'clock, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah, he's a fourth round draft pick in 2011. Oh my god! And then he ended up on Detroit and was relevant for a week. Mm. Wow. Wow. Okay. They've missed before. Sorry, Seahawks fans. We don't love the Amara Darbo pick. Amara Darbo. Can I just say that I like the pick more than Kevin Norwood? <laughs> so. Oh, yes. He's better than Ke- No, yes, yes. The glass is half full, right? The cup of coffee in Seattle, the Starbucks coffee in Seattle is half full with Amara Darbo. He's better than Kevin Norwood. <laughs> Damning with faint praise. This class did have some interesting athletic specimens. I'm thinking of Curtis Samuel. I'm thinking of Evan Ingram, these uber-athletic tweeners. What's your opinion of those players? Where do you think they fit on their respective teams? Uh, I really didn't like the Giants draft at all, um, with Ingram going 23rd. It's... Do you ever like the Giants draft? What the hell are they doing? It's, it's fair. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure I have. But, no, they yeah. are one of the bottom five front offices in terms of player evaluation. 
Right. I mean, luckily they have the best coaching in the NFL to, you know, compensate for that with McMcAdoo. But um, yeah, I don't know. Like, it just, I guess for me, the thing that's really dangerous is when we get too invested in recent history in the NFL. And so we say, like, wow, Jordan Reed's really good. We need to have the next Jordan Reed. And I feel like sometimes we see the next guy who looks like him and we assume that all the stuff Jordan Reed overcame to become really good is also going to happen with the other guy. So it's not that I wouldn't have taken Evan Ingram, and I think he's he's not a good bet, but I certainly would have taken him after David Njoku, who I, I think probably has fewer obstacles to overcome Thank to be you. a really good player. Thank you, Zach. Thank you for saying this. Just, just, just thank you. Thank you. David Njoku's amazing. David Njoku's going to be one of the best tight ends in the league, and we're not sure what position Evan Ingram even plays. Exactly. Now, that's the thing, right? Like Jordan Reed is a success story, but there's nothing that says that all the things he overcame. It'd be like if you took every short quarterback right, yes. and thought they were Russell Wilson. Yes, exactly. Because Russell Wilson overcame a lot of stuff. And Evan Ingram might be good, and I think he certainly is a promising player, and you take him on day two. But to spend a first-round pick on him over players who don't have those big hurdles to overcome is just boggling to me. Like, Right, that's the, that's the comps, right? We talked about the comps. The comps are such a great tool because they identify the outliers, who are the outliers? Well, David Njoku's not an outlier. All his comps are great, with the exception of Virgil Green, mm-hmm. who it's argued could have turned out better on a different team. <laughs> yep. All of Evan Ingram's comps, other than Jordan Reed, have flamed out in the NFL. We're talking about Doran Dickerson. We're talking about Darren Waller. We're talking about Niles Paul. The converted wide receiver to tight end, 235-pound tweener at the position, is wrought with failure. Chasing outliers is one of the great mistakes that NFL teams and fantasy gamers make every single year. The existence of the outlier as a red herring creates a lot of suboptimal roster constructions around the NFL. It's fascinating. Yeah, and I guess to me, like, the thing that's even more galling if I were to be a Giants fan, which thankfully I'm not, but if I were to be a Giants fan, right? Like, Poor Giants fans. They're doing this to chase, you can see their thought process. This guy's in their division. So they have, like, this tunnel vision, right? They're in the same division as the guy they think we need to get one, and they wouldn't got one way too early. And I just, I would be really frustrated if I was a Giants fan. They're not only chasing this outlier they're chasing this outlier because they happen to see him in their division so there's this recency bias that's layered on top of this outlier fascination which ultimately generates the evan ingram reach in the first round now when the carolina panthers selected curtis samuel some would argue a redundant asset to christian mccaffrey was that a reach in the second round I guess I'm a little more into Curtis Samuel in the second round because I don't see an obvious, like, you know, like uh, David Njoku going right after Evan Ingram, which just specifically goes after me and, and makes me feel just horrible. Right, right. I don't know, Curtis Samuel, it really comes down to can you utilize him? And if they can find a way to get those guys the right touches, I'm fine with it. Um, it seems like poor uh, asset allocation at some point to spend that much high capital on r- running backs. And whether you think he's running back or receiver, this is the same team that got themselves into real trouble by paying both Jonathan Stewart and D'Angelo Williams not that long ago, right? That happened! This is their specialty! We're going to draft redundant assets with high draft capital and then overpay them all. Right. (laughs) And it's not that I dislike Curtis Samuel specifically, right? Although we do see a lot of these hybrid guys don't work out the way they're intended. So I guess, like, I don't mind him as as an idea, 
and as a player that you could kind of have some fun with. Like Seattle was great with CJ Procise last year in the passing game yeah. for like the two and a half weeks that he was healthy. But the fact that they spent their first and second round picks on that, I know a lot of people are really excited. They can do all these multiple things and watch the tape. Twitter is really excited. You know, they're going to be able to do all this cool multiplicity and all these buzzwords. But like at some point, you're, you're kind of letting the rest of your team down, right? If you're spending your first two picks on the kind of the same kind of player. Synergistic multiplicity with the Carolina Panthers. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So here's the deal with Curtis Samuel's comps. All his running back comps are terrific. It's Ty Montgomery, it's CJ Procise, it's Theo Riddick, and you could argue he's more athletic than all of them. So that's exciting, right? That's something you're like, okay, that's interesting. And in fantasy, this is what we want. We want PPR backs, right? PPR back, PPR back, PPR back. Oh, PPR back. Oh, PPR back. Oh, does he catch passes? Does he catch passes? Oh, he catches passes out of the backfield. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Ah! Wide receiver, not so much. Yeah, I mean, maybe he's Randall Cobb, maybe he's Percy Harvin, and that's about it. So if you put him at wide receiver, you're chasing an outlier. If you put him at running back. You're putting him in a place where historically guys that look like Curtis Samuel have won at the NFL level. The problem is they drafted Christian McCaffrey around earlier. So that parking spot is filled in the backfield. Do we think that McCaffrey almost is more the receiver than Samuel? I don't know, man. I don't know, man. I almost wonder if it tends that way at some point. Like you see McCaffrey working a lot out of the slot. Um, and doing a lot and a lot of screen game and they kind of do share the backfield pretty 50 50 so I guess I, I could see something happening there and I almost wonder if in three years we think of McCaffrey more as a receiver but speculation it's speculation their offensive coordinator Mike Shula I believe <laughs> he has his hands full yeah I would not want to be in Mike Shula's shoes this offseason trying to figure out the optimal way to deploy both Christian McCaffrey and Curtis Samuel at the same time. Good luck, Mike! Yeah. Glad I'm not doing your job. Now, another interesting depth chart is in Pittsburgh because they drafted Juju Smith-Schuster, but they already have Antonio Brown, and Martavis Bryant has been reinstated, and Eli Rogers was efficient last year in the slot role. So I'm not so sure why they were motivated to draft Juju Smith-Schuster. And I don't know when he's going to be fantasy relevant. What's your read on the Juju Smith-Schuster to Pittsburgh draft pick? And was that actually a good landing spot? No, I, I mean, I like Juju. Obviously, he's like insanely young, which is which is fun. And he'll be trivia. We love that. Age-adjusted production. Ding! Especially like his sophomore year, right? Not the, not his last year, but um, the thing I, I guess that really it, it it kind of points out to me that they don't think Sammy Coates is good first, which I agree. That's great. Well, Martavis Bryant tweeted that. That was one of the great tweets of oh, the draft yeah. when Martavis Bryant <laughs> quote tweeted someone who said, "Hey, they just drafted your replacement," and Martavis Bryant quote tweeted and wrote back, "Nah, that's Coates' replacement." I was like, "Oh snap!" you rarely like see that kind of honesty but just <laughs> watching great. watching watching someone bury their teammate on twitter was phenomenal. buried him yeah but i guess like it 
It also seems like they might not trust Martavis. And, and I'm team Martavis. I have to. How could you trust Martavis Bryant at this point? I don't blame them for not trusting Martavis Bryant. <laughs> I trust him as a youth football coach. It seems like he had a really good experience last year coaching youth football. And I'm really excited about that. But like as far as an NFL receiver, he hasn't played in two years. And he's had, what is it, like three so is it three tests, bad tests so far. So, I mean, I think a they lot. don't trust him. But I guess that the problem there is that they're hedging. And it's a really expensive hedge for them, first of all, right? Because he went pretty early. But then second of all, for fantasy, you're, you're not only having to make the gamble on testing for Martavis and think, is he going to test or not? But that same gamble then applies to, Ju- to Juju. You're having to gamble on these unpredictable, non-football things that you can't really look at and objectively measure. Um, so it, maybe you get like an actuary to see if he's going to test positive and give you some odds on that. But it's really not a good fantasy landing spot because there's a lot of things out of his control and out of our really prediction ability that will have to happen for him to be productive. So I'm a fan of the player, but it seems like at least early as an impact, given how young he is and how stacked they are, uh, really unlikely they'll be making a big difference. Well, that's a great point. He's also very young, so he's not necessarily ready to come in and contribute right away. The one thing we did like about Sterling Shepard last year was that he was older. That meant that his ceiling at the next level was lower than most people believed. But it also meant that he was ready to come in and contribute right away and be a starter in three receiver sets. Juju Smith-Schuster's ceiling is much higher than Sterling Shepard's at the NFL level. But in year one, facing a stacked wide receiver depth chart and checking in at 21 years old when the season starts, well... It's understandable if he doesn't play much as a rookie. And then that first or second round draft pick that you burned in a dynasty rookie draft doesn't end up returning the value that you had hoped. That's why I'm more apt to draft a Chris Godwin in the second round. Yes. And wait and perhaps try to trade for Juju Smith-Schuster at the end of the season. I also want to get a read on Ben Roethlisberger this year. He looked broken last year. He cannot practice any longer. He's having genuine reservations about playing so i want to see how ben roethlisberger holds up this year before investing in members of the pittsburgh steelers offense in dynasty leagues i'm terrified of this ben roethlisberger situation because at first you think okay well juju smith schuster he just landed on a team with ben roethlisberger yeah it's on prolific offense go go juju juju go 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 juju go go juju juju go go well well whoa 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 Whoa, 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 I don't know what happened there. Now I, got, I, was, I felt like I was like a sing-songing all the way. So let me just go to this question. How the hell do guys like Jeremy McNichols and Aaron Jones fall to the fifth round? How? How? The NFL apparently appreciates production and athleticism. If they do, they can't draft Jeremy McNichols and Aaron Jones outside the fourth round. It can't happen. The NFL... Um is getting better at some things, but I think the biggest flaw they have left in their evaluation process, and then maybe maybe there's other things. This is a pretty it's fairly fairly broad statement, but they value pedigree to a degree that seems absurd. Yes, they really care where you played, right? And so they'll give a guy from Alabama who has really obvious red flags, um, poor testing. They'll give him a much better shot because they've seen him play a lot. And these small school guys, like, can you can you tell me <laughs> why Aaron Jones should go after some of these running backs? No, like. He didn't just go after Leonard Fournette. He went after Perrine. He went after um, uh, Donald Humphrey. He went after Kareem Hunt. He went after Deonta Foreman. 
he went after Alvin Kamara. Um, and that's just in the, that's just the third round. I mean, there's also like, it just, it just seems crazy. Like this is a guy who went in the fifth round and I can't, I can't understand what happened. Aaron Jones is very good. No one should be surprised when Aaron Jones leads the Green Bay Packers in running back touches this season. Don't be surprised. Just don't be surprised. Zach Whitman and Matt Kelly are telling you right now, do not be surprised. Congratulations, Green Bay Packers fans. You got yourself a great pick. The Green Bay Packers pay attention to athleticism. And Aaron Jones has that as well as a 50% dominator rating at UTEP. He's a great player. So is Jeremy McNichols. But it's just criminal what's happened with these players. But lucky for them, they both landed on perfect offenses for their skill sets with prolific quarterbacks on running back depth charts that were relatively thin. So it's unfortunate that it took so long for them to come off the board and it cost them money. But I believe it will help them in the long term to be on good teams where they can be put in situations and be one of the reasons why their teams win games. So when you have other weapons in the passing game, like the Green Bay Packers and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers do, and you have Jameis Winston and or Aaron Rodgers at quarterback, when you get the ball, you won't be the focal point of the defense the moment you receive the touch. So you're going to have necessarily more room to maneuver and operate We saw that last year with Ty Montgomery. So when Aaron Jones gets the ball, he now will get the ball in scoring situations with more room to operate. So that will help him in the long term create a resume to get paid when the second contract comes along. So if you take the long view, if you're Aaron Jones agent or Jeremy McNichols agent, who I know, by the way, then you're telling your clients, this is a good thing. You're forfeiting a few hundred thousand dollars now to make millions four years from now. Well, they're running back, so maybe not millions because we don't pay them anymore. But. Oh, that's right. God damn it. Sorry, you're fucked, Jeremy McNichols and Aaron Jones. You're running back. <laughs> they're not edge yes. rushers. Now, Atlanta, they got to Karis McKinley. To Karis McKinley was arguably a top 10 pick. Then he fell to Atlanta, and the one thing the Atlanta Falcons were missing in the second half of the Super Bowl was the ability to bother the quarterback. Now they have Takaris McKinley, the signature pass rush specialist, similar to Bruce Irvin, who was drafted by the Seahawks a few years back. I believe that Takaris McKinley was the Bruce Irvin of this draft class. Great explosion. Do you believe that he's going to be an impact player for the Atlanta Falcons and maybe be that missing piece? Um, I think he's a good player, but I don't think he's the missing piece. I, I subscribe pretty strongly to what um, people call the plexiglass principle. And so the, the idea there is that great improvement in one year is somewhat tempered just by regression the next year. And it's not always perfect. But I guess I, I would I would assume that their offense especially will regress a little bit just because it was so good last year and it's so out of the norm for Matt Ryan, you know, previously met Ryan, and now all of a sudden he's the best quarterback in football. So I guess right. to some extent I think he – he is a missing piece to the 2016 Falcons, but probably not the 2017 Falcons. I'm also not a big believer in uh, Vic Beasley. I, if you actually look at it, he had a, he had a fair number of sacks last year, but his, his hurry to sack ratio was very low. So it seemed like kind of like a guy who had like 20 catches but caught 10 touchdowns, like probably an unsustainable amount, and he'll have less next year. Um, so I guess the only concern I really do have, and, and the Seahawks played in this a little bit too back when they had Irvin, is if you get too many specialists, then you can't really play them on anything but obvious passing downs together. 
And so it does become very hard to do some things. Um, they do have Gary Jarrett in the middle. He's really good, and they, they have a really good defensive mind in Dan Quinn. But it, it does to some extent. It, it is limiting upside if you have Beasley and McKinley, because I'm not sure either one of those guys is a great base run defender. No. They're going to give up some rushing yards in Atlanta, that's for sure. Yeah, and maybe that maybe that's like a calculated decision. Yeah, but it does seem sure. like having having both those guys does probably somewhat take away from both of them because you're not going to be able to put them quite in the ideal situation. What Seattle did with Irvin um, after a year was they brought in Bennett, and having Bennett as the strong side end and moving Irvin out to linebacker and having him on third down was helpful. But Irvin's ceiling in Seattle is never that high because we played one down at edge rusher. Uh, so while he was a valuable player, the team kind of had to let him go because he just was never worth the money that he was going to draw somewhere else. So in their exact scheme, to be clear. Um, so I guess like I, I like it, but um, I don't think that it really will be the, the thing that puts them over the top, I guess. I think they're going to be fighting a lot of other stuff this year where it's, it's just really tough to be that good again. And speaking as a fan who had their team lose a heartbreaker in the Super Bowl to the, to the uh, New England Patriots, it is really hard that next year to rebound and be back mentally the same way. So I'm not quite expecting the same um, kind of season, particularly too with um, a great coordinator leaving them, just like the Seahawks had after their loss to the Patriots. Oh, I can already see the analysis explaining away the Atlanta Falcons' underwhelming start to the season by pointing to Kyle Shanahan. The loss of Kyle Shanahan being the reason instead of just natural regression, which is the actual reason. If you're a Seattle Seahawks fan, you have to hate the Oakland Raiders at this point. It has to be frustrating to see your players leave Seattle, head south, to Oakland, and now Las Vegas. Do you hate the Oakland Raiders? You must. I really don't. No. I mean, like... They're poaching all your good players. The guys that have left, though, it, it's been time to leave. And so Marshawn Lynch, for example, was was not a good player in 2015. And I think I think he's... Obviously, Marshawn is an incredible player. But his body was past him in 2015. And somebody the year away got him back. But he didn't really have a way forward in Seattle. And it was it was certainly time for him to move on. And I wish him all the best. And I hope he does amazing things in Oakland. The way the city feels about him, I think, is more that we want him to succeed wherever he is. This is not a breakup. And we, we just want the best for Marshawn. What a great place for Marshawn to be in. What a great yeah. situation to be in where you leave the team and now you have two different fan bases still cheering for you. What a great guy. He, he's figured it out. He is the best. I will always love Marshawn. So we're looking at some reaches. Talked about some reaches earlier. Leonard Fournette reach. But was Mike Williams the biggest reach of all? Hmm. I, it's tough. I don't think he was a bigger reach than, uh, than Fournette. But that, I guess that's an interesting one, right? Because he, he had some, um, some subpar testing. Yeah, subpar testing, subpar production. Just a subpar prospect across the board. But the NFL scouts love him. So that does matter. There are those guys that it seems like are Teflon, right? And nothing sticks to them right. because they do things. They do very, very, very specific things that make people excited. And winning jump balls is one of those things that makes you feel like nothing can stop you, right? Like there's something really powerful to scouts about seeing a player do something that can't be stopped. And they will always value that really highly. Even if you look at the rest of the metrics, you're like, well, it's not really our first round of talent. You know, mm-hmm. people just are not that dialed in because once their eyes see that thing that just excites them and gets them so ready to go they really just forget to look at the rest but he's a receiver so he can't be a bigger reach than for net 
the Seattle Seahawks would never have drafted Mike Williams. That's not their type. The Seattle Seahawks have figured out that the most efficient plays are throws close to the line of scrimmage, essentially the Doug Baldwin route tree. They've figured out the Doug Baldwin route tree are the most efficient passes to make. So if your specialty is winning jump balls and winning on the fade routes in the end zone, the Seattle Seahawks and many other teams have realized, oh, that's not the efficient way to play football anymore. When you're on the goal line, either you run the ball or you throw the slant. The fade route, the end zone jump ball is going away. Now, I know that Russell Wilson had that one play where he was running backwards 30 yards and he heaved it straight up in the air and Luke Wilson came down with it for a two-point conversion. I know that happened, but that was a fluke play. I'm sure that Seattle did not draw it up. They would have rather have a nice little efficient slant pass, easy pitch and catch touchdown or two-point conversion. So it was a reach for a lot of different reasons. And with San Diego, with San Diego, there they were exposed like Chicago, like Houston, as being one of those franchises that is looking at the wrong things, that's building a franchise, much like Jacksonville is, building a franchise to win in a different era. Football has changed, just like the NBA has changed. So drafting Mike Williams would be like an NBA franchise drafting a center with a top five pick. It's rarely a good idea. The centers are not winning games. It's the three-point shooters that you want. Well, in a league where the three-point shooters are winning the games for you, Julian Edelman, Doug Baldwin, the San Diego Chargers are out here drafting centers like Mike Williams. That's why I believe it was one of the great reaches. But all that said, you still can't argue that it was a bigger reach than Leonard Fournette because Leonard Fournette was also drafted by a team that was trying to win in a different style of play than wins now. They're trying to win with a ground-and-pound attack out of the 1990s. That's not good enough in 2017. And you're drafting not only a player to win in the wrong way, you're drafting a player at the wrong position because that particular position is has been devalued by the league in general, and you could have gotten a better asset at the same position in the second round last year in Derrick Henry. Now, we look at these big athletic wide receivers, and you're right. If they're from one of the big schools that we've heard of, like Michigan, they get overdrafted like Amara Darbo. But what about these big, small school wide receivers? One of them, Kenny Galladay, was appreciated by the NFL scouting industrial complex, but a couple of them, Krishan Hogan, Jerome Lane, were not. They went undrafted. So what happened there, and do you believe there's hope for Krishan Hogan and Jerome Lane? Well, I mean, the stats will tell you that undrafted free agents are never good, and I guess I would amend that to say they're, they're typically never good, right? Um, if you look at the averages, really poor. But, you know, there are players who succeed as as, uh, as late-run picks and free agents. So there's always a Julian Edelman and Doug Baldwin. Those are guys you're talking about, right? Right. We, we know we're chasing outliers. We know we're chasing Victor Cruz archetypes. We get it. We know. We know. UMass players, we get it. They rarely hit, but sometimes they do. So knowing we're chasing outliers, if you're going to chase an outlier, Hogan, Lane, Galladay, who you got? I, I guess t- to me, like I see the appeal of Lane, right? And if I was drafting a team and I had all these late round picks, I would be picking all these guys. Yes, <laughs> right. We would have you and I running a team. We would have them all. <laughs> yeah. I, 
So I don't know. I mean, like to answer your question, yes, I think we like probably we probably like all the same players, and I would I would love to have them on my team. I'd love to say like I know all of you have a 15% chance of being a contributor, but I'm going to take six of you, and hopefully one of you will be good. But teams just still don't quite do that. I think they're getting better at it. Athletic guys are getting targeted more in priority under free agency. They're getting targeted a little more in late rounds, but we're still not there yet. And um, you know, maybe in like seven years, we'll be to the point where it's way crazy, and all these athletic guys go in like in day two. But you know, we are definitely not there yet. It's not optimized quite yet, late in the draft. And I just it seems it feels like these teams should be putting a ton of resources into developing these guys from small schools because that's the number one thing I don't understand. Like, how can we be drafting these late round these the small school guys so late? Uh, when really all that's different is where they played, uh, and it, 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 it drives me crazy, right? Because this is like the biggest inefficiency to exploit right now, and it feels like people aren't doing it. They're not. Jerome Lane could be good. Yeah. Jerome Lane could be a real fantasy contributor sooner rather than later because he landed on the perfect depth chart where you had a guy named Chester receiving <laughs> significant snaps last year, the Indianapolis Colts. I think most people believe at this point Philip Dorsett is a bust. Dante Moncrief has yet to fully ascend. He's now in year four of this Dante Moncrief project, and we don't yet know what he is. And every year, the Indianapolis Colts are top of the league in pass attempts. Well, someone has to catch these passes. Why not Jerome Lane, who has exceptional size-adjusted athleticism and was productive in his first year playing the position. I know it was Akron, but he was a converted linebacker. So for me, that's the guy that you want to bet on developing at the next level. You want to invest in a Jerome Lane, knowing that he is that athletic ball of clay with the most upside. If he can continue to translate those athletic gifts into on-field production, then you have a star-wide receiver on your hands that you picked up after the draft was over. I mean, that is the great hope of every NFL general manager, I would think, that you get these assets for free that end up being true NFL playmakers. I think that's absolutely in Jerome Lane's range of outcomes. So based on his landing spot and based on his potential, I would pick up Jerome Lane in a dynasty league to stash on my taxi squad before any of the other big, small school athletic specimens. So I'll get you out of here on this one question because you live in Washington and I'm sure you've seen John Ross and I'm not sure if you heard, but John Ross broke the record for the 40 time at the NFL scouting combine. Oh, wow. Really? Did you know that? Um, I, wow. You just, you just broke the news to me. I mean, wow. It just, yeah, plastered, it was not plastered everywhere. Breaking news, John Ross broke the record for the 40 time, 42240, 100th percentile, obviously. So now he's in Cincinnati. What is his actual ceiling? There is a very wide range of outcomes for John Ross. What do you see as his ceiling, his true NFL upside? Well, I guess like to me, almost the speed is not the most important thing about John Ross, which seems like crazy, right? But you're talking about how these interior routes and these really precise route runners like Doug Baldwin are kind of really big contributors because they can pick up big chunks of yardage pretty cheaply, right? Where teams defend a little less aggressively in the middle of the field. And I've seen John Ross do a lot of deep routes and flies. I've watched him for a long time. I've stood beside him um, on, on campus. Like he, He's not the biggest guy, but I really do believe that in the NFL, he will be able to do a ton of stuff 
like Doug Baldwin or Edelman and a lot of the underneath stuff, in addition to the deep stuff, right, which is important. Oh, wow. So he's really that versatile. I think he, he really does. It. It's weird because three years ago, they, they converted him to defensive back because they thought that'd be his best chance at the NFL. What? Yeah, he goes Chris Peterson's. I think Chris Peterson's first year he played. He played friggin' like uh, defensive back. But I'm telling you, last he signed off on that because he thought that was his best route to the NFL as well. He that's 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 the thing that's a crazy thing that I feel like it's lost in the whole John Ross thing is that like people really didn't think he would have it at receiver. People didn't think he'd be drafted. <laughs> but the league's changing, and I'm telling you, this guy has the kind of red zone like short yardage ability, the kind of middle of the field ability, and so. I think it comes down to some extent how he's used, but I actually thought at, at UW his last year, his best asset was like running corner outs from the 10 yard line. He is so good at that. And his touchdown rate was incredibly, like he scored a ton of touchdowns and they were not all long deep balls. He's a really, really good player at doing those whip routes like Edelman or a little corner out. And so for me, I guess I'm really excited about that potential. And I think he's really good. And I, I must say, like, I'm obviously biased. I love John Ross. I've been a John Ross friend for a very long time, but I do not think it's just speed with him. And I think that's what really distinguishes him, right? Like yeah. the, the speedy guys, they, they come and go and maybe they're good or not good. And they have specific years where they hit a bunch of deep balls and they look better. But this is not Ted Ginn. And I think Ted Ginn might have gone nice too. Um, John Ross is a really, really good football player. And if he stays healthy, I do think he's like a top 10 receiving type. Um, I'm not sure he does stay healthy because he has really significant problems that like called like to mind like Brandon Roy and other people with really troubled injury pasts. But if he does stay healthy, I think he's a star player. Yeah, his yards per reception went from 21 as a sophomore down to 15 in his final year at Washington because he was running a more diverse route tree. And as you said, he did have an exceptional sophomore season. So he broke out at age 18 because he was very young when he enrolled at Washington. So he has what we want. He has great athleticism. Mm -hmm. He has great age-adjusted production. I think the arrow's pointing up for John Ross, and I also think that Cincinnati Bengals are going to pivot to a pass-heavy vertical attack. And I think everything is going to click into place for John Ross sooner rather than later in the NFL. Yes. The elite mafia people, they live in clown town. This is what we want. We want PPR backs, right? PPR back. PPR back? PPR back? Oh, PPR back? Oh, PPR back. Oh, does he catch patches? Does he catch patches? Oh, he catches patches out of the backfield. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Ah! And Martavis Bryant quote tweeted and wrote back, nah, that's Coates' replacement. I was like, oh, snap. <laughs> you rarely like see that kind of honesty. But just watching, watching, watching someone bury their teammate on Twitter was phenomenal. Comes for people that, you know, do a lot of athleticism work. It becomes a bit challenging to have even conversations with people that are like, this guy, whoa, 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 hey, hey, this is just a piece of the puzzle here, buddy. <laughs> Nick Saban's the devil. Okay. I'm not sure if you heard, but John Ross broke the record for the 40 time at the NFL Scouting Combine. Oh, wow, really? I've never loved a franchise more than the Cleveland Browns. Oh! 
That's, that's strong. He's definitely not definitely good. Synergistic multiplicity with the Carolina Panthers. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Jeremy McNichols, agent, who I know, by the way. You're not corporate finance executives. You own a goddamn fantasy team because you're not actually participating in organized crime. You run a fantasy team! Take a guy who's like has one arm, but... You know, overall, it's just... In- His one arm? Well, Ruben Foster, apparently, yeah, that might be amputated. Someone's knocking at the door. Let me go check. Oh, no! Ah! Okay.